Warning. The following broadcast may contain content that is unsuitable for children and sensitive individuals. This is Poor Brenton's Almanac, a weekly broadcast of strange fiction and horrible futures. I'm your host, Poor Brenton. It begins now. Episode 2, Santos Asphaltum. Welcome back to the Bunker of Love, broadcasting from 200 feet under whatever's left of Chicago. I'll be damned if I know if anyone's listening, but if you happen to come across my channel while scanning for emergency broadcasts, welcome. I guarantee my show is more interesting than that creepy automated one that just plays Ave Maria over and over again. Sounds like church. I guess I left you guys hanging at the end of last episode. I'd mentioned I was going to check out one of the hatches that I hadn't explored yet. The one with all the scratching going on the other side. It took a can of WD-40 and a crowbar to get the son of a bitch open, but I finally cracked it. As a matter of fact, I did such a good job, I can't close it all the way anymore. Fingers crossed there isn't a cloud of poison gas down there somewhere. I shined my strongest flashlight down the tunnel, but all I could see was a ladder shrinking down out of sight. I was too tired to climb after wrestling with that hatch, so I put my exploration off until later. Well, later's now. Time to go down the spooky hole. I'm ready this time. The lantern and a couple of crank lights, a gallon of water, and a backpack full of rations. I'm recording this on the fly, so if you're hearing this broadcast, I probably haven't died at the bottom of some filthy pit. By the time my pre-recorded story is done, a day, maybe a week will have passed. I'll fill you in on all the gruesome details. I'm excited to be exploring again. I've been going nuts being cooped up in this one tiny room of the bunker. I really hope there is something amazing at the bottom of that ladder, even though I'm fairly certain it'll just be a nasty sewer or something. Eh, I'm just procrastinating now. It's time to shoot the tubes, embrace the darkness, dive into the unknown. Take life by the horns and take a bite out of... Oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm procrastinating again. Alright, alright, so, without further ado, here's my story for this week. It's called Santo Asphaltum, and you'd better pray you make it to the end. located to another block east to make way for the mysterious shrine that had seemingly erupted from the pavement overnight. Local reporters covered the strange occurrence. It seemed the harder they tried to get to the bottom of it, the more guarded the locals became. Nobody would take credit for lighting the first candle, nor dropping the first carnation. Much to the consternation of the media, between the ever-growing pile of offerings and the constant surge of worshippers coming and going, they could not get a clear picture of what, exactly, the shrine had been built for. The only person outside the pilgrimage who got to see what the shrine surrounded was an intern named Eduardo that had been given the job of piloting an aerial drone from the back of a news van a block away. Shortly after the drone buzzed over the site, it was shot down by gunfire, and when they found Eduardo an hour later, he was despondent in the van, 
surrounded by a pile of destroyed recording equipment. All he could be heard to say was, The End. Soon after, all of the News Corps gave up trying to cover the anomalous shrine. The only reason they had wanted to cover it in the first place was to have hopeful content after all the nearly apocalyptic occurrences of the last week. But you can't get blood from a stone. Earlier that day, a half block from the shrine, a plaza cart and its man took shade in front of the Botanica San Pedro. It was a hot day, a good day to sell ice-cold treats to the hundreds of people paying respect to a mystery in the street. He tilted his wide hat back and wiped the sweat from his forehead, brow, mustache, and neck with a red bandana. He wished only to plunge his fevered head into the icy depths of the cart and temper his burning face with the individually wrapped confections. He knew he could never do this. Who would buy a paleta that had had a mustache all over it? man who was not only tall, but had a basketball jersey wrapped around his head, was suddenly too close to the paletero. Give me two orange, he said, looking down the street. He was shining with sweat. It looked like all of his many tattoos had been executed in places without windows. There were three teardrops etched on his cheek. The paletero's English was only good enough to deal with gringos that thought they knew Espanol. He kept his eyes down under his wide brim. Okay, four, please. You didn't hear me? The tall, jersey-headed fellow kicked the cart, and it would have tipped over if the paletero didn't write it. I said give, not sell. The paletero frowned and gripped the handle of the cart tightly. Is not free. The tall man spread his arms and spun around. You know what I do for this block? The cart man looked to his left and to his right. I don't see much. The tall man kicked the cart again with a bit more bravado. Men on the outskirts of the shrine took notice and began whispering to each other. You couldn't be here if I didn't let you. The paletero gazed up at the tall man. I give you two for one if you stop kicking. The paletero had a brief but thrilling fantasy of grabbing the gangbanger by the head and slamming it into the cooler. But even if his body was strong enough to throw around a 200-pound thug, he was far too meek to do much more than turn away from evil and hope for the best. He wouldn't even swat a dog if it was about to shit on the carpet. The tall man looked down on him using mostly the whites of his eyes. You sure about that, Cochise? A sound filled the air, as though a quartet of weed whackers was descending upon the holy mob. Is good deal. Aye, fine. The thug turned as if he were about to leave, but the paletero knew what was about to happen. Just as the pistol was coming into view, he pushed the heavy cart into the tall man and ducked behind it. The man was thrown off balance, his arms pinwheeled, and he squeezed the trigger. The gun had thankfully been pointing at the sky, so it didn't strike any innocent bystanders. However, the sound of the shot startled a few of the religious throng who happened to be carrying guns themselves. Cooler heads failed to prevail, and soon bullets were flying in a number of directions. One of the bullets struck a high-powered propeller on a nearby news drone, causing it to spin out of control. 
It plummeted to street level and made a relatively soft landing, most of the shock being absorbed by the tall, gun-wielding man. The damaged propeller struck just in time to sink deep into the man's jugular. The Politero watched the injured gangbanger arrive on the pavement. One of the bullets had brought down a pigeon. It was mostly black, with stains of white. The bullet had only passed through its wing, hardly deadly, but crippling for a pigeon. The Politero checked the cart for damage and, seeing none, wheeled it closer to the two wounded bodies. He picked up the flailing bird just before the pool of the man's blood reached it. His experience with chickens at his childhood home paid off. Soon, the pigeon was relatively calm and tucked under his arm. He left the wounded man and headed back to the Politaria to drop off the cart. He knew he wouldn't sell any more ices that day, not with a pigeon under his arm. The tall man had thrown the gun from his hand as soon as the drone struck him. The beaten Glock skittered across the sidewalk and, by some miracle of blind physics, clattered into the slot of a storm drain and dropped out of sight. The jersey had come untied from the man's head. After his initial freakout at the attack, he faded to a blood loss-induced calm. He took the jersey in a hand that didn't quite feel like his own and pressed it over the gash. Soon, the white jersey had become a red one. The uproar died down, and those that had fled the gunfire returned from hiding in alleys and storefronts. The tall man had grown pale. He kicked the still-whirring drone away and pushed his back up against the wall of the shuttered Botanica. The crowd had grown quiet, but all eyes were on him and the machine. He called out as loud as he could, I need a clinic! Two factions melted from the crowd and slowly surrounded the two wounded figures. Around the drone, which was still trying to lift off the ground under control of poor Eduardo and the news van two blocks away, was a group of older men, all with wrinkles of fatherhood, salt and pepper mustaches set serious, screwdrivers and wire clippers in hand. The final few moments that the drone broadcasted before it ceased to exist were very interesting. The final few moments of the tall man's life were more terrifying than interesting. He spent most of those minutes screaming as loud as his condition would allow. Time moved strangely for him. It felt as though it took an hour to push his ass against the wall. Yet in a moment, he was surrounded by creepy old ladies with bright white hair, wrapped up in black shawls, bony hands clasped tightly around something that hung from their neck. His vision was getting dim. The creases and cracks in the faces of the old women grew darker and deeper until he could see only the strange shine of their little eyes as they sunk farther and farther down into the sockets of their skulls. I need a clinic! He lost his hands, and they dropped to his sides. The bloody jersey dropped to his lap. The woman hushed him as the darkness of their shawls closed in. Calla, hijo. Usted pronto se parte de algo mucho más grande que todos nosotros. The last thing the tall man felt was dry, shriveled lips on his neck.
all westbound traffic on the busy street had been blocked for almost 48 hours, and attempts at breaking up the group by local police units had failed, resulting in shaken officers who immediately requested furlough. Some never returned at all once they waded into the crowd. The mayor called for a nuclear option to reinstitute order, and a grizzled veteran of the 69 Democratic National Convention directed the hellfire from his wheelchair in the Rising Sun Retirement Home. The armored police vehicles rolled down North Avenue like an invading army. When the crowd didn't budge at the sight of the baton-wielding force, they quickly leapt through the steps of less-than-lethal weaponry, starting with tear gas and sonic cannons, working their way up to rubber bullets and the newly acquired microwave projector. The crowd persevered through all of this punishment without moving an inch. It was only when the street sweepers were sent lumbering in that the levee broke and the worshippers scattered to the side streets. The most merciless of the street sweeper drivers was tasked with heading straight for the sprawling shrine and not stopping for anything that got in his way. Though many waited until the last moment to dive out of the way of the machine's deadly brushes, none stood to the death to protect the shrine. The thousands of offerings were soon ground to a pulp, sucked into the cavernous stomach of the sweeper. The avenue was quiet now empty but for the occasional gas canister still steaming and hundreds of curious officers pushing to get a view of the street where the shrine had been. Angry questions began to be asked when they realized just what they were looking at. A half a foot from the curb, just in front of a bus stop, was a fresh patch of tar. The spectacular thing about it was that, impressed into the still hot shiny tar, was the face of a man. It wasn't Jesus or any other saint the officers knew of. It was a terrifyingly familiar face. It was smiling, laughing at the best joke ever told. Some of the officers unholstered their guns and fired on the asphalt when they realized the face was laughing at them. There was little else to be found on the street after the sweepers had passed. Food wrappers and other trash, used syringes and forgotten sneakers. The only thing that called for a coroner's report was the ashen body with its back against the Botanica San Juan. Shirtless, with a bright white jersey on his lap, the only thing that separated this from a standard OD was that the man was completely devoid of blood, and not a drop was found nearby. The sun rose as usual the next day, though not as high. That's my story. I hope you heard it. It's a couple of days after I recorded the intro to the broadcast. The good news is that I made it back. Bad news is, this place is a lot bigger than I thought it was. It took me ten minutes of steady climbing to get to the bottom of the shaft. I'll have to count the rungs next time I go down so I know exactly how deep it is. The whole way down, the scratching got louder. By the time I got to the bottom, it was deafening and accompanied by a whooshing kind of hum. I almost turned around. For all I knew, I could have been climbing down into some industrial trash shredder or a furnace or something. But no, I made it to the bottom without being crushed or burnt. I know that climbing a ladder for ten minutes isn't anything to write home about, but I was stoked. 
noise was destroying my ears by the time I saw what it was coming from. The hum was so strong it felt my organs dancing around under my ribs. I was disappointed when it turned out only to be a huge pump room. Air, water, who knows what else. The scratching noise was coming from a sheet metal guard that had vibrated out of place and was rubbing against the drive shaft that was screaming around at 5400 RPM. I was able to carefully bend the guard back into shape with my multi-tool. The release of relative silence after I fixed it was like a shot of heroin. Uh, not that I do that. The room had more machines and ducts than I could count. A steel door led to a hallway that looked like it had been chiseled out of bedrock. It was cool down there, damp, dark. I didn't like it in those tunnels. I know there's something down there. I spent an hour wandering, but there were so many twists and turns I knew I'd lose my way if I didn't mark my path. The mystery of it, it is almost a creature in itself. I felt it following me, hiding around corners, behind unmarked doors. It's here in the bunker with me now, and I can't make it go away. That's my next goal. I need to know why this place exists. I have a bit of good news before I sign off. I was able to get my laptop to work with an old modem I found down here. With that and an AON trial disk, I have limited access to ancient websites that actually load, and, oddly enough, Twitter. So go ahead, show me you're alive. You can follow me at Poor Brenton. I'll let you know when a broadcast is about to drop, as well as other strange things I come across with my amazing 9600 pod modem. Go ahead, let me know what you think. So, that's where I stand. I'll broadcast again in a couple weeks, if I'm still alive. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, so long, and have a nice life. Brenton's Almanac has a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0, international license, which means that you can download it and share it, just don't change it or sell it. Poor Brenton's Almanac is a creation of Holy Crow Press.